in World War II, um, when a plane would be disabled or, or uh, damaged and they weren't sure whether they could make it back to the carrier or to the landing strip where they had taken off, uh, what would happen is another plane would come alongside of that plane and would never lose visual contact with them but would stay right with them all the way until either they did reach the airstrip or the carrier or they had to ditch and the other plane, the second plane, would know exactly where that pilot was so that they could be rescued and retrieved. That second plane, the one that came alongside to help the damaged plane, was called a shepherd. Uh, It's one of many, many ways that we have found to use the word shepherd because the concept of shepherding is such a visual idea, and it's one that we really understand and we connect to, even if you've never actually seen an actual shepherd in your life. Still, we connect with that idea, and a lot of it is because of Luke chapter 2, and shepherds in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. So we take that idea of shepherd, and we apply it to a lot of different ways. So in the corporate realm, uh, sometimes in corporations, they'll have people who are called project managers. And those project managers are responsible for taking a project and managing it. You see how clever that is, project manager. Okay, the rest of you will get it like Thursday morning or something. But their responsibility essentially is to shepherd that project from inception to completion. A similar thing happens in politics, or at least it did back in ancient times when actually stuff got accomplished in Congress. Um, Sorry, that slipped out. Did I say that out loud? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, But what happens is a bill goes before Congress, and, and it starts off in committee, and then it goes through several phases of committee, and then it goes to the full Congress, and then it ultimately goes to the president to be signed, assuming that it's passed. And that whole process, somebody shepherds that bill all the way through the process. In sports, uh, I, I, I watch English Premier League football, uh, and uh, it's football where you actually use your feet. And in English Premier League football, sometimes when the ball is going toward the end line, a defender will shield off the attacking players from being able to get to it and shepherd the ball out of play. All of those ideas of using the word shepherd ring true to us because we have a mental image of what shepherds are and what shepherds do. Shepherds oversee, care, watch for, move. Shepherds do a lot of those things, and we see the characteristics of that throughout the Scripture because shepherding is not just an idea that we've grafted into our 21st century culture. Shepherding is one of the biggest ideas in the whole Bible. We see shepherding throughout the Scriptures, and and we see shepherds responsible for caring for stuff, whether it's caring for actual sheep or whether it's caring for human sheep, which is why it's so appropriate that David was a shepherd boy before he became the king where he would shepherd the nation of Israel. There's a sense in which when David was that shepherd boy back in the day, that that was on-the-job training for when he became the king. 
because the same basic principles applied, as we'll see in a few moments, when we look at the tasks of a shepherd. That was for the kids. Get them started. What's really interesting is that when you have David as a shepherd boy becoming a shepherd king, that makes perfect sense to us because we can see the transference of, of skills and, and responsibilities and, and duties and all that kind of stuff. It all makes sense. It's a little bit different with Peter, who's a fisherman, and he is told, now you're going to fish for men, but then ultimately after the resurrection, Jesus says to Peter, what? Feed my sheep. <laughs> Become a shepherd. He spent his whole life as a fisherman. Now he's to become a shepherd. Why? Because God's people, whether it's in the Old Testament as the nation of Israel or whether it's the New Testament in the church, the body of Christ, God desires for his people to be shepherded. God desires for his people to be cared for. And that's why we refer to people like Cameron and Jeremy and Tom and Clint as pastors because the word pastor literally means shepherd. It is someone who shepherds the flock, someone who cares for the flock. And as we'll see, that is a comprehensive kind of care that shepherds are supposed to give. So let's look at Luke chapter 2, and let's look at shepherds and kind of bring something that kind of floats in the background of the Christmas story and maybe in the background of our overall awareness of Scripture, and let's bring it more front of mind and front of center and get a little bit of understanding who these guys were. I can tell you right now, they were not five-year-olds in their bathrobes with fake beards, which is the normal shepherd that we're used to seeing in the normal Christmas program. But they were kids much of the time, and that's very interesting. So let's go to Luke chapter 2. It says, and in the same region, stop right there. When it says in the same region, we need to know what region the same region is, and so you have to jump back to verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Now, it's very interesting. Bethlehem was referred to as the city of David because that's where David was born and that's where he was raised. But also, Zion in Jerusalem was referred to as the city of David. It was kind of like a little village within the larger city of Jerusalem where the palace was and all those things were. So there's this connective tissue between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, both linked in with the city of David. And if you're one of the youngsters who was here last week and we told you to pay attention to how many times we use the name David, today you're going to hear David's name a lot as well for the same reasons, because there is a direct link between King David in the Old Testament and the birth narrative of Jesus in the New Testament. And we see it in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. So when it says they were in the same region, shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping, their watch, uh, keeping watch over their flocks by night, the same region is the region of Bethlehem, where Joseph has brought Mary and where Christ is being born. That's what's going on, and that's where it's going on. And that may sound insignificant, but it's not insignificant. It's significant because much like in Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew uses the device of the, the genealogy of Jesus to show his direct hereditary link to King David, 
Here, Luke does it by reminding us of Bethlehem and what Bethlehem was about and how ultimately Bethlehem was the city of David. Why? Because Joseph was of the lineage of David. Why does that matter? Because that gives Jesus a hereditary connection by his adoptive father, Joseph, into the line of David. Uh, into the line of David. All of that stuff matters. All of that stuff plays into the story. So when it says they were keeping watch in the fields by night, there are two pieces of that, and one of them is kind of a, 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 uh, kind of a buzzkill uh, for a lot of us because we don't like to hear this kind of stuff. But the fact that they were in the fields by night is evidence to us that Jesus was not born on December 25th. <gasps> Heresy. No, he wasn't. He wasn't born on December 25th. Uh, there's a theory I'll throw out there in a minute, but first I need to tell you why. Because the rainy season in the wintertime in Israel, the rainy season runs from like late October to, to late February, and during that time of the year, you did not stay out at night in the fields with the flocks because the weather was too bad. And, and, and it would create problems with the health of the animals and the health of the shepherds. And so really from the time of about March through October, that was the time when you would see shepherds and their sheep out in the field 24-7, night and day, all the time. So in the very least, while we cannot prove a specific date when Jesus was born, we can prove that he was born. <laughs> Regardless of the date, we can prove that he was born. Because we see his life and we see his death and we see his resurrection. And through his birth now we have the opportunity, a new birth. So the issue is not so much when Jesus was born as it is that he was born. But it's important for us to really try as much as possible to line up our thinking with Scripture. As far as when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, December 25th is just as good a time as any. Works just fine. Uh, it doesn't really matter as long as we remember why it is we celebrate, and that's his coming. So the fact that they're out in the fields at night probably tells us that it's in spring or summer, maybe early fall. But notice it says they were in the same region, staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Out in the fields, the, the hills around Bethlehem, and some of you have visited Israel, so you've seen this, but the, the, the hills outside of Israel are actually called the shepherd's fields. And uh, when you go to Israel, even today, you'll see flocks of sheep on those shepherd's hills, and you'll see shepherds with them. And, and on one of the trips that I led, I've led several study trips to Israel, and on one of them, we had just visited Bethlehem. We were driving through the shepherd's hills, and come, as we came around a turn, coming down the hill were two shepherds and a bunch of sheep. And I thought, well, that's really cool. We're Bethlehem, shepherds, sheep, shepherds, hills. It's all kind of there. And, and, and it was very cool to see. But the shocking thing, and, and we stopped the bus, and we had one of the shepherds pick up a, a very, very young ewe lamb and bring it up on the bus so that, so that our folks could kind of get an up-close-and-personal thing with a sheep, whatever that means. And, and so they did that. But the, the shocking thing about it is these two shepherds, they were probably about 12 years old. They are probably about 12 years old. And what we know 
is that in ancient Israel, much of the time, even though there were adults who were involved in supervision, much of the time, the shepherds that are mentioned in the Bible were kids. And they weren't just boys either. Remember, Rachel, the daughter of Jacob, was a shepherdess. When Jacob meets her at the well, she's bringing the sheep to be watered at the well. So there were guy shepherds and there were girl shepherds and there were a lot of kid shepherds. And the reason why that's important for us to understand is to see the freshness of this. To see the freshness of this. Remember, David, when when Samuel came to Bethlehem to anoint a new king in Israel because Saul had defaulted back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Samuel comes, he goes to the home of Jesse and he says, bring all your sons. Well, he brings the six oldest ones. He doesn't bring David. Why? Well, David's the youngest. He's the kid. Well, where's he? He's out in the field with the sheep. Because that's what kids did, because that's what they were able to do. Everybody worked. Everybody had a task. And the tasks of a shepherd, even as they're described in the Scriptures, are pretty comprehensive and pretty arduous, even for an adult, let alone for a 10- to 12-year-old kid. I mean, the tasks of a shepherd, as listed in the Scripture, included knowing the sheep. John 10 talks about that. Knowing the sheep. Why? Because you didn't brand sheep. And, and if you go to England today and you see sheep on the fields, you'll see that they actually spray paint something on the wool to, to identify which sheep goes to which flock and so forth in case they get all mixed up. They didn't have that stuff in, in ancient times, so you had to know your sheep, and they had to know you, so that when you called, all your sheep came to you. So there was a relationship of knowledge there. You had to lead them, Psalm 77. You had to find pasture for them in Psalm 23. And by the way, when we read it in Psalm 23, it sounds very nice and serene and lovely. But down in the shepherd hills of Bethlehem, now you're getting down closer to the wilderness area, to the Negev region, where in the rainy season there's plenty of grass, but as the summer goes on, the grass dies out, and it becomes a real job to find pasture for your sheep because of a very difficult task. You would number them, Jeremiah 33. You would watch over them, as we see in Luke chapter 2. And by the way, outside Bethlehem in first century Israel, there was a tower called Migdal Eder, Migdal Eder, which means the tower of the flock. And what would happen is if you had your flock of sheep, you could actually climb up into the tower to keep an eye on them and literally watch over them, as it says in Luke chapter 2. So that was part of the task of a shepherd, caring for them in every way, Genesis 33, defending and protecting them like David did when a bear or a lion came in and tried to steal them. Ravenous wolves come in wanting to spoil the flock was an image that was well known in the ancient world, and that's why it's used in the New Testament. If one gets lost, Luke 15 says the shepherd has to go looking for them has to go searching for them. And if they become ill, the shepherd had to be an amateur veterinarian, according to Ezekiel 34, and become a healer for the sheep. All of this, all of these tasks, and there's a bunch of them there, all of these tasks all describe a comprehensive role of care in every way for the sheep. And so when it says, in the same region there were some shepherds, some of them maybe 10 to 12, 13 years old, staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. When it says keeping watch, all of that other stuff is packed into that phrase. 
because all of those things comprised the tasks of the shepherd. You say, well, why is all this important? Well, it's important because in a moment, we're going to see these shepherds being the only people in that moment invited to the nativity scene. And I'm convinced that part of the reason for this is because they are shepherds, and part of the reason for this is that since they are shepherds, their role perfectly anticipates what Jesus came to be and do for us. He came to be the shepherd of our hearts. He came to be the one to provide comprehensive care for us in all the circumstances of life. He came to be for us what we need, just like that shepherd was what was needed by those sheep because those sheep could not do anything for themselves. And one of the greatest days of our lives is the moment when we realize that we can't do anything for ourselves. And we realize how desperately we need Him in every way. I firmly believe, you might disagree with me on this, I doubt that you will. I firmly believe that Jesus actually meant everything He said. I think He meant everything He said. And that includes when He looked at His disciples and says, without me, you can do nothing. The moment that we realize that we need Him for everything, we are now in a position to where our shepherd can fully care for us as a shepherd does. Because that's the imagery of Scripture for a reason. The care and concern and watchfulness and protection and and defense and provision and all of the things that these shepherds keeping watch were doing for their sheep is what Jesus came to do for His flock for his people, which is why he said, I am the good shepherd. And how complete is his care? It is so complete, he says, that I lay down my life for the sheep. The tasks of a shepherd cause us to anticipate and look forward to how our shepherd would shepherd our hearts. And so that's why I think it's so wonderful that these guys are the ones who get the invitation. (laughs) These are the ones who get invited. These are the ones who hear the message. And the message comes in verse 9. It says, And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, packed within that verse, there's a phrase that I think is the key to the whole announcement. This angel comes and makes this announcement. And just the appearance alone of the angel is enough to scare these guys out of their minds. And as he had to do, as we saw last week with, with, with Zacharias and with Mary and with Joseph, before he can say anything else, he has to say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But then he gives this message. Good news. Great joy. Notice this. All the people, hold that thought, all the people, not just all the people of Israel, (laughs) 
There's no qualifier there. This is the God who looks at a lost and broken world and opens his arms wide and says, whosoever will may come. That's the invitation. And the invitation that was given to those shepherds that night anticipates the invitation that goes out now, not because of the birth of our shepherd, but because of his self-sacrifice on the cross. The invitation is to all the world. But even more specifically, he says, for today in the city of David there has been born, here it is, for you. For you. For you. And I love how intimate that is. I love how personal that is. I love how welcoming that is. Because if you understand the tasks of a shepherd, you also need to understand the challenges that they faced. Because yes, they faced the challenges of wild animals. And yes, they faced the challenges of thieves and robbers. And yes, they faced the challenges of weather and all that kind of stuff. They faced all those challenges and their tools were designed to help them. They, they, they had fleece coats that they would wear in order to protect them from the weather. They had a sling, which was their primary weapon against animals, and a cudgel, Psalm 23, rod, rod and staff. The cudgel was a rod like a blackjack that they would use to protect the sheep from men who might break in and steal. And then they had the staff, which was used for physically moving and directing the sheep around. Every one of these tools speaks of the physicality of the job. Not only was it hard work, there was hardship involved in that hard work. These are the challenges that they faced. But maybe the biggest challenge they faced was not a physical challenge. Maybe the, biz- the biggest challenge they faced was actually an emotional challenge. Because most shepherds live most of their lives in isolation. Nothing around but the sheep. Hours upon hours upon hours upon hours alone with the sheep. separated from relationship. But for these particular shepherds, this isolation is much more intensely personal. Because shepherds were viewed by the religious leaders of their time as ceremonially unclean. Because they dealt with animals all the time, because as a result of being out there 24-7, that meant that they were shepherding on the Sabbath most of the time, which made them ceremonially unclean. Because they were among those wild animals, they couldn't practice proper hygiene, which made them physically and ceremonially unclean. All of these things unspool in the life of a shepherd to say, you are not welcome. The temple is restricted for you. Worship is restricted for you. The sacrifices are restricted for you. You are not welcome. And what's so ironic about that is because of the proximity between the temple in Jerusalem and the shepherd's fields of Bethlehem, the vast majority of the lambs and sheep that these shepherds would have been keeping watch over were destined to be sacrifices at the temple. 
And if you don't think that's a big deal, think about this. Scholars estimate that at any particular year during the Passover alone, Passover alone, somewhere upwards of a quarter of a million sheep would be sacrificed. And they'd come from the shepherd's hills. How ironic that the very shepherds who are responsible for watching over the sheep that made the temple sacrificial worship work were excluded from that worship, restricted from that worship, not welcome in that worship. But even though they might have been restricted by religion, they're welcomed by God. And that's why those two words, for you, just jump off the page. Can you imagine these shepherds? Can you imagine these guys, maybe a couple of adults and a handful of kids, and they're out here in the fields and they've got the flocks and they know the flocks are going to a place they don't get to go. The flocks are going to be a part of worship they don't get to participate in. But it's not to the religious leaders and it's not to the wealthy and the wise and it's not to the rulers and the kings and it's not to the governments and the leaders. It is to these shepherds that the invitation is given for you. Yes, it's good news of great joy for all the people. But guys, this time you're included. You're welcome. Not only are they welcome like everybody else, in a very special way, they are welcome apart from everyone else because nobody else gets this invitation. <laughs> everybody gets the whosoever will may come invitation. They're the only ones that here for you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus, the Savior, our shepherd, is the one to whom everyone is welcome, even the outliers, even the ignored, even the rejected, even the isolated, even the alone, even the forgotten. Everyone is welcome here. That's the message of the gospel. Everyone is welcome here. And it's not everyone but, and whoever you particularly don't like, it's everyone. Aside from perhaps lepers, they could have not picked a more ostracized group of first century society to welcome to the nativity than these guys. And the angel says, for you. For you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Wow. Wow. These shepherds are welcome in the presence of Jesus, even though they're not welcome in the temple of Israel. So how do you respond to that invitation? How do you respond to that invitation? It says, verse 15, It came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, 
wow, that was interesting. It would be neat to sit back and see what happens next. There is nothing of that here. There is nothing here but energy. There is nothing here but excitement. There is nothing here but immediate response. It says, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Can you believe it? He made it known to us. That for you, he wasn't talking to somebody else. He was talking to us. He's made it known to us. What can we do but respond? See, they're the first ones to hear. And in response to that, they're the first ones to obey. And what's so interesting is in Hebrew, the word Shema in Hebrew, we usually translate it here. Shema, hear, O Israel, the, the Lord our God is one Lord. We usually translate it here, but it actually is the word that's used for obey. Because the implication in Hebrew is this. If we hear the voice of God, how can we do anything less than obey? And that's the spirit of these guys. The spirit of these guys is they hear the message of invitation and they immediately respond with obedience to it. And they go, and it says, they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Drop down to verse 20. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. Think about this. They were the first to hear. And as a result, they were the first to obey. And because they obeyed, they were the first to see. <laughs> and having become the first to see, they then became the first to tell. There is such a natural and lovely and winsome progression there. They hear, they obey, they see, and they tell. They bear witness. And they bear witness to the point where everyone who heard it wondered at the things that were told them by these shepherds. <laughs> I imagine they wondered. I imagine they wondered, how'd they get an invitation? And I didn't. I imagine they wondered, what's going on with this? The world's turned upside down. Shepherds get to go? Yes, that's the point. The world has been turned upside down. Shepherds get to go, and so does everyone else. The question is, when we hear, will we obey? And then when we see, will we tell? There's beauty in these dirty, smelly, forsaken shepherds. Because suddenly the fact that they're socially unacceptable doesn't really matter very much to them because they are acceptable to God. Suddenly the fact that they're not welcome in proper circles doesn't matter because they've been welcomed by God. And so they break out into society telling what they have seen and heard. And they do it glorifying and praising 
God who had invited them to the first Christmas. It's fantastic. The open arms of our great God to everyone, everywhere, pictured in the least likely recipients of an invitation to Christmas. And what you need to understand is when they got to Bethlehem and when they saw Mary and Joseph and when they found the baby wrapped in claws lying in a manger just as they had been told, what they were looking at was more than what they could comprehend. They didn't know. They didn't know what it was going to mean. They didn't know that that manger would one day be replaced with a cross. They didn't know that the cloths that wrapped him in that manger would one day represent clothes ripped from his body as he was beaten and scourged. They didn't know that that manger throne was leading to a very different place where he would be lifted up so that he could draw all men to himself. They didn't know that. They didn't know that. But here's what they knew. A Savior's born. And we've got to go, and we've got to see, and we've got to tell, because a Savior's born. And it's so appropriate that it's shepherds who get the invitation, because Jesus himself would become the ultimate shepherd. The ultimate shepherd. Yes, in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. (laughs) But in Hebrews 13, verse 20, we're also told that he is the chief or the great shepherd of the sheep. And in 1 Peter 5, we're told he is the chief shepherd. He is the good, great, and chief shepherd. What makes it all the more compelling that in order to lay down his life for us, he became a lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The shepherd became a lamb. It's it's so fascinating. I would challenge you to do this. Read through the book of Revelation in one sitting. Okay? 22 chapters, not the end of the world. You can do it during halftime. Okay? Read through the book of Revelation in one sitting and see how many times Jesus is described as the Lamb. It's extraordinary. In Revelation chapter 5, as everybody's worshiping around the throne, as everybody's there at the throne and, and worshiping the Father, here comes the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But John says, when I looked, I saw a Lamb that had been slain, standing in the midst. And from that moment on, every time it's lamb, 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 lamb. Why? Because the shepherd became the lamb to give us hope. To give us hope. Without him, 
We are like those described by Paul in Ephesians when he says that they do not know God and are without hope in the world. (laughs) And so Jesus came. And he became our good, great, and chief shepherd. And he laid down his life as the Lamb of God so that we could have hope because we know God. And that's why it all matters. And that's why the picture of shepherds is so rich. Shepherds who guard sacrificial lambs now come to see the ultimate shepherd who will become the ultimate lamb who is our hope. And we have no hope anywhere else but in our shepherd lamb, our sacrifice, who gave his life up for us all. Earlier this morning, Jeremy took us to that almost haunting phrase from the first verse of O Holy Night, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, (laughs) and the first, the first to get to do that were shepherds. I guarantee you they were weary because it was wearying work, and I guarantee you they rejoiced because hope has arrived. And hope has arrived because Jesus has come. The shepherds saw the shepherd, and the lambs pointed to the lamb, and in him we have hope. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for the joy that we have in Christ. Thank you that everyone is welcome here. (laughs) Thank you that in our darkest moments and in our deepest trials, we're welcome in your presence. Thank you that in our darkest moment and our deepest trials, we have a shepherd, a shepherd of our hearts that we can run to and that we can find in him everything we need. Father, we thank you for this marvelous story that never gets old, though told over and over again. And I pray that once again, this Christmas, you would stir in our hearts this thrill of hope that is linked to our shepherd lamb. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.